Welcome to Beyond Bitcoin, a podcast about all things digital assets, the global communities they are creating, the generations that are using and investing in them, and the challenges faced by the nations that are seeking to regulate them. The content of this program is not to be taken as investment advice. The opinions expressed in the program by the host and the guests are their personal opinions only. Remember, feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. My name is Derek Graham. I'm the CEO of Portal Asset Management, and my co-host is Nitin Gower, Managing Director of State Street Digital Assets. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world, and welcome along to another episode of Beyond Bitcoin. Hey, it's a special episode, Nitin. How are you? Yes, it is. Good, Derek. Glad to be here, and congratulations. It's our one-year anniversary, so happy birthday to Beyond Bitcoin. One year, so many different speakers, so many different topics, <laughs> so much change has happened in that one year. And to celebrate it also today, we've brought in um, Mark Whitten, the CIO of Portal Asset Management, who's often been a guest of ours along the way. Hello, Mark. Hey, how are you doing, guys? Good to be here on a, what seems to be a, a very, um, time seems to be fleeting quite quickly. It's amazing to think that it's already September and it's a one year anniversary. <laughs> So 52 episodes, this is episode number 52, and to think of some of the things that we've covered, and we'll go through that in a moment, but to think of what's happened in the last year. Um, you know, we've regularly used this statement that this industry exists in dog years, like the first year is nine years, the second year is nine years, then it's seven years, and then it's seven and six, et cetera. It's just moving so quickly. And, and I think everyone's probably focused on the fact that, you know, We've seen this amazing change. And over that period of time, Bitcoin's gone from 68,000 down to 19,000. Mm. You know, it's, it's the CCI 30s dropped 68.5%. I mean, my gosh, throw your arms up in the air. It's the end of the world. But we all know that there's a big difference between price and value. And what we're seeing is the price drop, but we've seen this incredible surge of money going into the space. You know, we know we've discussed it a number of times over $100 billion has been invested in venture capital money in this space. And, and in a space where you can develop product relatively quickly, I mean, it's not the pharmaceutical industry, you can develop product, you know, in months, rather than many, many years, that means there's a lot of product coming. And in the same time that we've been doing this episode, you know, we've seen the user base um, rise nearly triple its size last year, calendar year. And, and grow again this year. So more users, more product, more activity. And, and so we sometimes overshadow price with what's actually happening in the industry. Things like El Salvador adopting Bitcoin, you know, Ethereum's London upgrade, Web 3.0 are either appearing or really being enhanced with the likes of Helium, Chainlink, Filecoin, Flux. Um, these are incredible new offerings that have come forward. And then a little bit of color to say the least which is Beeple's, you know, huge NFT sale of $69 million, which sort of set this <laughs> rampage of activity um, in the world of non-fungible tokens and everyone got in it. And the board eight, you know, a yacht, board eight yacht club appeared and crypto punks appeared. And, and then all of a sudden people learned that they could earn money and play in play to earn environments. <laughs> and uh, the Philippines, the Philippines blossomed with it because it helped them through the COVID period of time. You know, we've seen the first US based Bitcoin ETF. And we've even seen the establishment like the London Stock Exchange buy a digital asset trading company for a very large amount of money to plan for its future. 
and that's just scratching the surface. Um, so meanwhile, of course, you and I have been doing interviews and catching up with people and, and trying to interpret this world along the way, both sharing this education with others, but frankly, learning at the same time. Who have we seen along the way, Nitin? Yeah, it has been it has been a great one year, uh, Derek. Uh, absolutely love the interaction and several learnings we've had, uh, and and overall what we've achieved, achieved both personally in terms of you know preparing for these events and 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 these episodes and learning what's happened in the week, opining on it, providing a perspective, an informed perspective, educating and providing global perspective to our audiences. And I've had in preparation for this, Derek, some memorable <coughs> moments that we've covered in the past one year. Right, we've. We certainly absolutely love the global perspective. We've had present, you know, we had uh, sort of speakers and guests from Argentina who talked about hyperinflation and how the crypto is helping them get through it and, and, and provide an alternative and avenues to deal with that hyperinflationary situation. We talked about Brazil and what's happening in Brazil in similar area from South American context point of view. We had India where we had tier two, tier three cities, yes. North America and, and New Zealand and Australia, which is where you are. And, and name a few to, to sort of focus on overall crypto adoption and patterns and trends. And in that context, we've oftentimes compared layer one protocols to nation state status, which is competing for talent and competing for capital with mm. Ethereum and Bitcoin. And now we've seen, again, Ethereum going, accelerating the merge because they had enough competitive pressures from the likes of, you know, Solana and Cardano and, and Avalanche of the world. And what's evolved in the last one, you know, I also think is super interesting. And I spend most of my time on that now uh, in my new role, in my day job is around regulatory roundup. We looked into various college of regulators, the <clears throat> Bureau of International Settlements and the FATF, uh, central banks uh, looking into Treasury, OFAC, and looking into financial crimes and what various agencies around the world have done, whether it's taxation, whether it's treatment of assets, whether it's, uh, you know, fiduciary responsibility of various players, uh, sanction screening, and, and how do we do that? And oftentimes it's been a policy agenda as opposed to a technology agenda. Mm. And of course, with our, uh, what has been my favorite topic, which I've spent a lot of time learning about is market data. We had Petro's who has a recent addition as a data scientist, uh, the genius that he has to make sense of the market data around us, not just the price data, but incorporating exogenous data, such as social intelligence, the code base, uh, the momentum and externalities yes. that impact the price, right? And so we we provide our audience with, with the application of like, for example, uh, the efficient market hypothesis, which is pharma, you know, pharma and Fitch's paper back in the seventies, and providing relevance on market data and price equilibrium, and how crypto market either does not fit in that thesis, or simply refuses to comply, and it's just noise versus just an evolution. And that's the kind of conversation I think we bring to our audiences is deeper thinking and deeper intellectual thought process behind what's happening in the industry. Uh, and I'll say one more thing before I take a pause, Derek, is love the debate, and I still can't get enough of it, on stablecoin and central bank digital currencies. <laughs> so in some cases, uh, as a competitive force to somehow nation states thinking that they can have a digital version of currency and that'll fix the challenge of the competing forces that they get from the Bitcoin and Ethereum of the world. But it's been my favorite topic due to the uh, sort of the linkage and impact of global macro and crypto markets and how crypto and Bitcoin eventually became 
correlated assets to risk assets, you know, risk on assets, which was not the case in 2017, as we have analyzed in my past write-up. Um, so a lot of thinking, which led me to, you know, not just, you know, the, the Beyond Bitcoin podcast, but after every podcast, it gave me, it gave me inspiration material to go and write my own articles, which I think was to me, mm. uh, just the intellectual evolution that came from it. And I think I'm looking forward to the next 10 years, if we can have the energy to keep up with the changes that are happening in, you know, in the industry. So I'll take a pause and, and love to get your thoughts on if, if I've missed anything that we've covered in the past one year. Look, there's so much we've covered in the last 12 months. Um, and as I said, this industry grows so incredibly rapidly. Um, we could do four podcasts a week. We could do it every day. <laughs> every day we could do a podcast because there's so much happening in it. You know, it was, it was extraordinary. We had um, a director of the Reserve Bank in Australia make a statement once um, during this last 12 months. And he turned around and said, uh, you know, if we establish a central bank digital currency, there'll be no need for cryptocurrency. <laughs> and and I was and I, I remember when I heard I just fell back in my seat and I, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to laugh or cry. It was just such an extraordinary statement. But this is the evolution of the establishment and them starting to understand the space. You know, we've gone from a position of, you know, two or three years ago when they mentioned Bitcoin, it would be drugs and money laundering. Um, and then you go, okay, so I understand where you're up to in the process of learning. Um, and then now you, you'll, if you'll hit somebody that doesn't understand the space, they'll turn around and go, so why do we need 12,000 different currencies? I don't understand. We've already got a number of currencies in the world. So, so it's an evolution, this learning process. But the more people get aha moments, the more they can actually turn around and go, oh my gosh, so a central bank digital currency would do this, but a stable coin does this. But on the other hand, a utility token is generating a return and a security token is fractionating an asset. Oh, wait a sec, these are all different things. I can start <laughs> seeing how this economy works. But what's exciting about it though, is that really, this is the first time there's a new asset class since 1640 when the Dutch created the equities exchange. And so we're sure. seeing the creativity of human beings creating communities, environments, solutions, um, to, to, to future generations and right now. And that's super exciting. Um, and so that's what I've really enjoyed watching along the way. Um, hey, Mark, while we've been thoroughly enjoying the technology and we've been fascinated by what's happening, you've been navigating a fund and you've been watching what's happening in that regard. How do you see the last 12 months going in tough times in navigating um, funds and looking at what's happening in, in this space? <clears throat> Thanks, Dave. Um, so, so managing money is always, um, you know, it's always unpredictable. In, even when you're in the middle of a, a good market, you, you never feel like it's a good market. You know, I, I heard a saying once, one of my colleagues remarked when, when I asked him, how's, how's, how's it going managing the volatility? And he said, it's like riding a psychotic horse through a burning barn. You just never know which way to go. <laughs> <laughs> so you, I'm going to use that of, one. <laughs> you, you constantly, you constantly kind of in this. It's not. It's, it shouldn't be a knee-jerk reaction, but you're constantly trying to recalibrate as to, you know, what's happening as the markets update on, you know, whatever new news flow comes out, on the macro and and obviously on the company and and you know geopolitical side. I think what's made this last 18 months very, or the last 12 months in any event, a very different cycle to what we've been seeing over the past decade is, you know, we, we came through the COVID sort of lockdowns and, 
and all of that. And the world's economy started opening up and repairing. And then we, we, we started getting this, the sense that although there was so much money that had been printed and there'd been this massive rally in, in potentially you know, hard assets, like real estate and so on, um, and the equity markets have been buoyed by the, the high tech stocks, we'd also seen a commensurate amount of money flow into, um, into the crypto space, particularly in the VC side, as you mentioned earlier. And the VC is often a very good forward predictor or early indicator of interest in a space because VC money tends to be thinking not 12 or 18 months out, but five to seven years out. So VC money is generally, you know, often a much, um, a much more patient form of investing rather than in, in equities or any other asset class where you have liquidity. But I think people weren't really expecting um, or, or underestimating, first of all, how much inflation was going to come through. But then the sort of the wild card is this conflict in the Ukraine, which has only gathered momentum since the beginning of the year. And that's sort of brought into sharp relief a lot of the underlying issues in terms of money supply, in terms of how interconnected the global economy is, in terms of you know, how, how dependent Europe is on, on Eastern or, or Russian energy, particularly gas. And you know, the reality is the prosperity we've seen over the past, call it almost 20 years with the inclusion of China and the BRICS into the global economy has created a lot of interdependency. And now that seems to be sort of unraveling, um, not rapidly, but it is unraveling. And it creates issues in terms of, well, how do you, if you're managing a company that's relying on components out of, let's say, Taiwan, or you're managing a fertilizer plant or a farming operation with, you know, that relies on, on you know, cheap, cheap energy or gas, how do you manage these businesses when you have no visibility of, of earnings? And that's flowed through into the crypto space, I believe, because many people are, are looking at crypto, number one, as, as, as the digital gold store of value, immutable, all of those good things. But they're also looking at it in terms of future growth. They're also saying, well, where's the future growth in the underlying economy going to be coming from? And, and particularly from a tech solution point of view, you know, the, the things that are, or the protocols that are being built on the likes of Ethereum, um, you know, NFT smart contracts, all those things that are starting to, to, to gather a lot of momentum. There's also been a concern around, well, from a regulatory point of view, what does this mean if the world becomes very, you know, conflict driven rather than cooperative? And that's what we're starting to see is this, this bifurcation. So managing the fund has been a challenge in that initially it was a very strong impetus from a bull perspective. And then we, we, we definitely got the timing, you know, we timed it quite well in terms of getting out of the markets ahead of the correction in the middle of 2021 with China banning the Bitcoin miners and the legislation issues. But we've, we've yet to be kind of comfortable to enter back into the markets, even though things are looking very cheap. And we're becoming a lot more bullish as time goes on. There has been some some cracks in the system, um, as we know, over the past few months that have led us to take a step back and say, well, until we see the simmer down, we're not going to be, you know, going as bullish as we were call it 18 months ago. But in the in the medium term, the longer term, you know, we're very, very bullish on this. We're very, very, you know, we're big believers in the structural bull market. In the short term, particularly leading into the end of the year and all the changes that could happen politically with the midterm elections and so on. I think we're going to take a bit of a risk-off attitude until we go into the end of the year. Hey, Mark, wow. um, riddle me this. Why is it that this uh, particular crypto downturn, as opposed to the many that have happened in the past, um, has become so correlated with traditional markets, right? And so obviously we, we know that there's large amounts of money that is coming from institutions and there's liquidity here. Mm. Um, but 
that's not the first time that's happened. It's just a larger volume. So it's become so correlated to traditional markets and it's also become so correlated to the NASDAQ. So why is that? And secondly, what do you think it might take to decouple that correlation? Because the markets, this market is moving at a different pace than what traditional NASDAQ um, offerings are getting uh, moving at. What are your thoughts there? Um, so in the first instance, I think the, the excess liquidity that we saw in some other asset classes spilled over into crypto, we had a lot of retail and speculation and, and leverage. And that exacerbates, it kind of like pushes things either too much to the upside or there's, a, there's a, an overreaction to the downside as well. Mm. I think um, the growth or the rise in geopolitical risk, um, particularly between East and West, has created this tension around whether crypto will, be, will face very strict legislative requirements. And that's kind of made some institutions a bit more reticent in terms of investing in it. But the correlation is just that in times of stress, in times of real deep economic stress, people look for liquidity everywhere. So it's more, I believe, more of a behavioral component rather than clear, you know, fundamental fact-based investing. And that's where the opportunity comes in because investors that are independent and objective and sit back and do the maths behind it and say, well, Ethereum grew its earnings by 500% last year, generates a $10 billion in fees. Nowhere else has given me that kind of growth. Buying Ethereum below 1,500 is a real, it's a, a no-brainer. And considering all the other things that are happening in that, in that ecosystem. But for other investors, it's like, well, you know, particularly people that are driven by behavior, they'll be sitting back and saying, well, everything's going down. We will need to get our money to some sort of safe haven like gold, which I still mm. can't understand as a, as a hard asset besides animal spirits. So that's why I think the correlation came through. What's making it start to decouple is number one, you're seeing funds like Brevin Howard launched a billion dollar fund, which in any asset class is, is an achievement. And Brevin Howard is one of the oldest and most respected global macro hedge funds on the block. You're seeing a lot more institutional acceptance in terms of custody solutions, in terms of more regulation from a counterparty risk. So what'll make it decouple is when people realize, you know, two or three different aspects of what makes this environment this ecosystem so exciting one being the growth in in, in web3 which incentivize entrepreneurs as you said earlier there was you know people from a gaming perspective that started getting involved so it's going to encourage participation in an economy where people are like unable to to either get the kind of jobs that they want or they're not going to be earning the kind of incomes they would like to earn from years and years of studying and then number two people have been you know, there has been a backlash against big tech, against overreach, against censorship, against all those things. And that's pushing people into looking for alternative ways to store their wealth and move their wealth around. And then three, the last thing I'd say is, it goes back to growth. Capital always flows to where it's going to be most productively employed. So where the yield and growth will be highest. What's the growth in Disney's earnings or Amazon's earnings or any other yeah. company you can think of? Maybe 5, 10%, 15, I don't know. I think it'll actually go backwards. What's the growth in, in, in some of the protocols that are going to be built on Ethereum in terms of DEXs, in terms of mm. all these other exciting things? It's not maybe five or 10, it's maybe five or 10,000 percent over the next few years. Mm. Sure. Mm. And that's what investors are going to be looking for. That's the decoupling, I believe. Mm. Very good. No, that's uh, that's brilliant. So let, let me, I, I wrote an article on this, uh, you know, Mark, and in similar lines, I think the dependency now of where we are in the market is so high based because and there was a conference this this week at Aspen when we talked about the fact that 
this is a participative economy. Uh, we should participate in this Web 3.0. And again, not to go back in time, but every time we have a new technological innovation, whether it's um, starting from the industrial revolution to information revolution to the three phases of web and where we are, technology itself is deflationary in the sense over time it gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper because there's enough uh, sort of momentum around it and things things become at a at a at a much more exponential scale. But to your point on decoupling, to me is always viewed crypto as a fifth asset class, which means it can stand on its own because of the economic terms, because of growth, still has some dependencies in terms of, again, the hardware, the networking on, on, the, on the traditional infrastructure. But I think the reason why it's so correlated is because at least I have felt that way, that we begin to move a lot of sort of assets from the traditional markets into the space. And the fear now, in most cases, again, this is the conversation that I've been looking into analysis, that a lot of hedge funds actually have begun to liquidate traditional assets to preserve the crypto assets. So it has a downturn effect hmm. on the traditional market, traditional finance, only because there's this potential, the upward potential that you talk about. Hmm. Uh, and, and that is something which, which is why I think if you look at the, the rhetoric from, from, uh, from SEC, from many of the hedge funds is to declare and disclose the type of investment exposure they have, especially after the, the three AC contagion that we've seen. Yeah. And so I think it's even more important now for crypto to actually achieve that decoupling uh, only because, you know, uh, and, and to achieve that, I think there are a few things that the industry needs to do, uh, which, which I think resonates with your point. Yeah, I agree with that. Dario, the final thing I'd add to that is, you know, in every industry, <clears throat> like you spoke about, whether it's the industrial revolution, whether you saw it in the automotive industry, which I was, I, I, did, I did a lot of research on that when I was looking at you know, how Tesla's evolved back in, you know, I started looking at the 1920s, how people moved from the horse and buggy to automotives. And there's like a very short period of time where all of a sudden you have this exponential rate of adoption and Malcolm Gladwell calls it the tipping point. Mm. As, point you yeah. tip, as you tip, and there's a certain percentage, you know, that, that, that starts saying, well, this is now the, the place to be in terms of growth and how the world's going to work from a, you know, a, a different accounting system. It doesn't happen where there's a slow, gradual uptake. It goes like, once you have the front runners, the lead steers, as, as they used to be called, um, the likes of you know, Warren Buffett and them used to be known as lead steers, not so much anymore. But Brave and Howard are lead steers. In other words, you know, they're the ones that, that look at the technology, they're innovative, they're adaptive. Same as Ray Dalio from Bridgewater. There's an excellent podcast with him out recently with Tony Robbins talking about this, you know, the, the expectations for this new world order. And he's extremely bullish on digital currencies and he explains why in a way that like, it's hard to put into a minute in terms of the end of this debt super cycle. People have lost confidence in particularly fiat's ability to maintain its value. It's just being debased and continues to be debased. And with inflation running as hot as it is, people are looking for ways to store value. Not everyone can afford real estate or factories that are real assets. So from my perspective, I completely agree that we're reaching this tipping point where the rate of adoption goes from three, four, five, 10% to like 50% in the space of a year. And that's when you'll see this ecosystem really get the legs that it needs to, to take it to the next level. I don't know if that'll be in the next three to six months, but I do get, I'm very confident it'll be in the next two to three years. No, I agree. I think we've seen the momentum now. You mentioned Brevin Howard, but you have a few other funds who've actually dared to raise 100 million plus for their funds in this economy, in this market, which I think is, is an indication that there's still enough confidence uh, from an investment point of view, I think. So, that's the rear vision mirror. And what's going to happen with us? 
So we as a podcast are going to continue to reach out, get interesting speakers, um, cover many topics and many nations, because what we're interested in is not just the technology growth, not just the regulatory growth, but we're also interested in the cultural adoption of the technology, different countries and how they're doing it differently, as we've seen already with South America, India, New Zealand, Australia, the US, um, because I think as a broad knowledge base, and that's what we're trying to create here, both for our audience and for ourselves, um, this adoption, this, these cryptocurrencies, they really are, they're clay on a potter's wheel and you can create most anything out of out of this it's just going to be fascinating to see how the cultures do that so our goal is to bring along lots of interesting and interesting speakers uh, covering many different topics and i know we've got quite a few of them already teed up and so by the way for those that are listening if you've got a speaker that you'd really like us to come onto the show with or if you particularly want to contribute we'd be delighted to hear from you so by all means drop us a note um, and and you'll be able to catch us on our LinkedIn profiles and other things like that. <laughs> and and we'll and we'll write back to you in a, in a flash and and let you engage in what we're doing here, because it's not just our views or our interpretations. We're keen to have other people's views and other people's interpretation on this journey for at least the next twelve months. So having said that, what do you think is going to happen? in the next 12 months. It's like an impossible thing to answer <laughs> for, for this for this space. But just let's have a shot at it. Um, what do you what are your thoughts firstly, Nitin? So I think one, we need an intern for research that they can research and make things easier for us a little bit. We need yes. uh, some sponsors. So hopefully in 12 months, we have those mechanics sorted out to get a, at least a couple of sponsors as our viewership uh, sort of grows globally. And an intern and, and a, a proper editor, which I think we all have been doing. You, mostly kudos to you, Derek. You've been doing much of heavy lifting here. But I think that we'd like to sort of elevate this in terms of getting truly global, you know, uh, eminent speakers. But more so, not just for a market commentary or stating the obvious, but providing a perspective in the sense that, and that is something which I think is still missing because oftentimes people state the obvious and we have, I go to many events, many conferences, and we are oftentimes dissecting what happened. I would like to embark on, on sort of uh, having a journey which allows us to be able to provide a bit more data-driven scientific approach in addressing this to make it unique in the sense that we should bring that point of view, that perspective and that knowledge that drives to say, we've got to stick to this point. We've got to make a prediction. We've got to stick to it because we feel this is where things are heading. Mm. Though we've done much of that last year too, we'd like to continue doing some of that stuff to, to make these bold predictions. And with, with conviction, which I think is such an important part of what we're doing here, both from a fund management perspective, but also in terms of, uh, of, of the podcast, the work that we do is saying, this is my, you know, this is the conviction that I, that drives uh, our thinking, that drives our research, that drives uh, you know, the countless amount of hours that we put into writing the content and 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 and, and putting it out there. Uh, it's not just an intellectual exercise, in my opinion. It's also uh, co-learning with our audiences and co-learning with our yes. speakers, I think. Yes, that's right. Now, I find the process absolutely scintillating, and I hope that's what the audience does too, uh, because, you know, this is not just what is happening in your backyard is not what's happening in Australia or America. We're engaging what's happening in India and what's happening in South America. So we constantly talk about the fact that this $100 billion of VC money has come from the developed country. Yeah. And, and yet the user base is rapidly growing in the developing countries. 
And so how that evolves over the next 12 months is going to be really interesting. My view is that uh, we're going to see the developing countries leap ahead and probably see the likes of India hit number one uh, because, you know, bright, intelligent, you know, numeric, um, well-educated and keen to do business. And like there's 900 million um, that are there, I believe. And I'm not sure the exact number now, but it's, there's a lot of it's one point one point three billion now. Yeah, one point three billion as I'm tech is a little late. Now, yes. <laughs> yeah. So so I think it's gonna boom ahead. Um and and I hope that what we're gonna see with the likes of, of America and Australia and Europe is is responsible regulation to enable the industry to grow. Um, to acknowledge that yes, it will threaten existing establishments, but it's about it's about adapting and it's about seeing the industries grow accordingly. So that's what I'm hoping from in regards to the next 12 months. Um, Mark, what are your thoughts in the next 12 months? Um, so I think Nitin hits it, you know, hit the nail on the head with you know expanding research. I think it's going to be a big driver of our our building of capacity. I think you know if we look at the crypto market is a global market. You know, when I used to run equity funds, you would trade within your time zone and, and you'd often trade the US because they were the most liquid, but you tended to stay away from, you know, time zones that you didn't have in a competitive advantage in, in terms of having boots on the ground. Whereas in this space, you know, no one really has a competitive advantage because it is completely global. So I think we've done well to build our operations in, in Australia and, you know, Singapore, We've launched our fund recently in the UK under AK Jensen using their license. And we're looking at a US structure and a US feeder. So then we have operations in the, the three major time zones. I think from a research perspective, we've got a lot of capacity. We just need to, you know, bed down the process and, and start producing the kind of research that we, we know we um, will be using to manage both funds. I think there's always going to be room for future products down the line. Um, you know, as, as the industry evolves, there'll be speciality type funds we're already seeing niche funds coming in whether it's from a, a lending or an nft perspective and so on and i think the the overall growth in the industry um both from a product perspective coming out of the vc side is being matched by growth in the liquidity that'll be coming from the more institutional investors mm -hmm. so i think those two things combined where you have growth in product and growth in investment you know they'll drive prices but it'll drive application in other words you'll see a lot more take up and a lot more acceptance and the way I think of it is, if I look at my, my, my three kids that are all under the age of 10, they're already very comfortable, you know, playing Roblox and trading with each other on Roblox in digital currencies, even though they mm. might be using gems and things like that. Mm. So 10 years from now, I would expect all my kids to have some sort of digital wallet and be transacting in various currencies. And they, you know, I, I don't think, I think CBDCs are a different, a different discussion altogether. But I don't think the growth in the crypto market is in any way going to be slowed or curtailed unless, unless there is very draconian legislative issues. So I see the industry growing, you know, from its current trillion in market cap. I could easily see it reaching the, the same as, you know, gold, may, may, maybe not that depth in the next year to two, but within five years, I can't see yep. how it will be less than the market cap of gold. And gold's market cap is some $12 trillion. So a long way to go there. So gentlemen, and so those that are listening to us, a sincere thank you. Thank you for your thoughts. Thank you for engagement. Thank you for your nice, kind words. And even thank you for your comments in regards to where we may be able to improve along the way. Um, happy birthday to you, audience. Happy birthday to us. And may the next 12 months be as exciting and as interesting as the last 12 months. I'm sure it will be. 
Thank you so much for being there all the time. Of course, the two of us together, Nitin, um, and your enthusiasm you, for this space. Yeah. Oh, likewise, thank you so much for everything. Yeah, thanks. And, Sorry, Derek, thank yeah. you. Thank you for joining us, Mark. And thank you for coming on a number of times through this period of time to give us that, that interpretation of you know, funds in the marketplace and what's happening in both the traditional way of investing into the space and looking at it. It's been superb. No, thanks. Um, My pleasure. It's been, it's been great working with, um, with, with you and with Nitin and, and with the rest of the investment committee, Matt and, and Petros and so on and Jules, you know, just in terms of getting the perspective as to what's going on both in, in different geographies, but also within the space from a, from a tech and a, you know, where, where we see things headed. It's been like quite an amazing journey from where we were two and a half, three years ago in 2019 and the world has changed a lot <laughs> since yes, 2019 sure has but at the same time i think you know we've we've done really well to build our product build our brand build our research generate track record all these good things and i'm, I'm glad to say that i think and i really do believe we're a credit to the space we're a credit to the industry and we are kind of you know going to be seen as, as pioneers at some point you know once once the industry starts maturing 10 years down the line yeah exactly. sure sure see you next week everybody happy birthday Another Take year care. next week. Bye for now. Bye, Derek. We hope you enjoyed our weekly conversation. If you have any questions, comments, or suggested topics, please contact Nitin Gower or myself on the emails displayed here or via our LinkedIn profiles. Feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. Stay well, inquisitive, and engaged. See you next week.